Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. It's Sunday, March 5th. It's 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we're live out of Chicago. This is our live call-in show, which means my co-host, Lisa Rigi, is joining us. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hi, Denise. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Typically, we air our call-in show on the last Sunday of the month. I just I just couldn't get my act together last Sunday, which is why we're doing it this Sunday, which happens to be the first <laughs> Sunday of the month. But we will be back on track in March with our next show airing on the last Sunday of the month. And during our call-in show, we pose a question to you. And so tonight, our question is, do we need a caregiving agreement. It's also called a personal care agreement, and basically what it does is spells out your responsibilities in a caregiving situation. It would also spell out the responsibilities of other family members who are helping, and if you're receiving reimbursement for providing care, it spells that out. You can get as detailed as you want. You can say, I'm providing care for my parent who lives with me, I'm receiving a flat fee from them for this. I'm also hiring help every Friday so I can get a break, and I'm taking two weeks off during the year so I can get a break. So it becomes something like responsibility, an employment contract, and a a document which reflects any kind of money that you might be receiving. So, Lisa, you posed this question. This is your question that you thought of, which I think is such a great question. What do you think? What do you think about an agreement like a personal care agreement? As I've been looking at the information, um, and I just ran across it a couple times with this personal care agreement, terminology about how to basically, as you say, lay out what the responsibility is, who's going to be doing it, the money. And from that, it just seems like the other financial documents need to grow from that as well. But as a caregiver that I've seen all my life, and this is, you know, we're talking 50 years that I've been exposed to this, that I've never seen a personal caregiving agreement within my family. And we've taken care of family members. Um, be it, you know, my, my dad we took care of, but I now take care of my mom and my son, but we took care of my dad's sisters, and we had documentation for the pre-burial, the, you know, pre-funeral arrangements done and powers of attorneys, but not anything like a care agreement that would lay out who was doing exactly what, what providing what care, who would be going to hospitalizations, who would be able to talk with doctors, those type of, you know, situations. So I want to remind anyone who's listening to our live show that we welcome your thoughts. You can join us in the chat room or you can give us a call. And our phone number is 646-652-4944. When you call, 
automatically go into what's called listen mode, which basically is you'll be on hold. You'll still be able to hear the show. Lisa will actually start to talk to you off the air just to get your name, where you're calling from, and then she'll bring you back on to the show live, and then we'll start talking to you. So just so you know, when you call, you go into listen mode, which is basically like being on hold, but you also can still hear the show. Lisa will talk to you off the air initially, get your name, other kinds of pertinent detail, then bring you live on the show for you to share your thoughts, concerns, worries, or, yep, we need that. So I first started writing about caregiving agreements or personal care agreements in 2009 because the idea of getting paid started to really gain some traction. So, for instance, if your caree has a an, the access to assets rather than hiring someone, if you're doing the care, why not pay you? Why not pay you? Anytime that money enters the equation, I always think it's a good idea to have an agreement in place as to how much you're being paid and what you're doing in exchange for that reimbursement rate. Certainly a financial planner or an attorney can help you draw up something that's like this, a personal care agreement. I also think that if you have siblings or other family members, it's important to make sure that they're aware of any kind of payment you might be receiving. And so the legal document that could come from this agreement can be helpful and can protect you. So the big thing about this is if you're getting paid, it protects you after your carry dies and all of a sudden your siblings say, where did all this money go? We didn't know you were getting paid. We didn't know it wasn't coming to us. You now have our inheritance and we're going to sue you, which seems so crazy, but you never know what people will do. So oftentimes when you think everything will be okay, when the will is read and the the estate is divvied up, you just want to make sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's. So if you're receiving reimbursement, it's important, I think, to speak to an attorney to formalize the agreement so that other family members are aware that this is happening. You just don't want to surprise anyone, especially surprising people who are counting on an inheritance, which they later do not get. I'm not saying that their perspective is right because it's not, but it's how people think when it comes to money. The other part about the personal care agreement too, is that it protects your well-being, your breaks, your ability to say, well, it's in the agreement, so it's good for me to take every Friday off and bring in a companion sitter or a home health aide or have my carry go to an adult day center. This is the agreement. This is what we agreed to. It takes away the, oh, should I? Maybe I should keep going and not take any breaks. The agreement spells out the break, so it gives you that permission to take the break because that's what everybody has agreed to. There's another part to it, though, that I wonder what you think about, Lisa, and that is the idea that we're turning what can feel like a personal decision and a personal relationship into a, a business decision and a business relationship. What do you think about that, Lisa? 
I think that can be easily taken, excuse me, the position of because you're drawing up an agreement and people might think of that as like a legal document or, you know, why do we need something to be put down in writing? But in essence, it's really, as you said, protecting the care and the person providing the care. And it's just keeping them safe and making sure that they're receiving the best possible care and that the caregiver is also being taken care of. That is so important. And I think if it's outlined and it's something that is agreed by all parties, and especially on how the assets, because money can make people do crazy things. Yes. And just, money, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, I disagree that it's just, I think it's just easier if it's, you know, taken care of that way. So here are some comments from our Facebook fan page. So Lena writes, yes. So her answer to the question, do we need a caregiving agreement, is yes. Because family will turn their backs on you. They will blame you for everything they didn't, aren't doing, especially when some things go wrong and when they, the non-caregivers, can get in the way. Okay. So Vita writes, a family caregiving scenario needs to be heartfelt first of all. If you have a backup or several backups to help, it would be ideal. A family will is needed and agreed upon, but not as if you are to do this. This is what you'll get. That's (laughs) okay. You know what? Sorry. Okay. Gosh, let's see. I'm not sure what that sentence was, so bear with me. So so she's writing, but there's emotional guilt. Another aspect to consider is you are living in nearby accessible, and are you able to provide the necessary help short of nursing care or being a CNA? So she, I think she's saying yes. And then another Facebook fan writes, yes, as an only child, life stopped. We need to be aware of the obligation you're placed on your offspring. You've placed on your offspring. And then two more yeses. Yeses by mm-hmm. all means. So here's another question for you, Lisa. I have four siblings. Two years ago, we all were on the same page about helping my parents. Two years ago, the five of us could have created a caregiving agreement as to who would do what, when, and how. A year and a half, well, now we're in a situation where there's four of us. The fifth has said, I'm not going to help you guys. I wonder if that agreement would hold any weight in keeping her to her word. I'll just say as an aside, would we want the agreement to hold any weight to keep her to her word? Because it's a little easier now that she's not in the picture. What do you think about that as a a document that holds weight when a family, when a sibling or a family member says, sure, we're going to help. And then they don't. What do you think, Lisa? Wow. That's a tough scenario. I have an older brother who has been helping out 
so I haven't run in it, run into a situation as such. But that would make it really difficult if they were part of the agreement initially. I see this personal caregiving agreement as a working document because all of our lives as a family caregiver, something could happen that might require that document to be changed. Um, it could be a job transfer or job loss, or it could be um, uh, the caregiver health. Um, it could be the carees. So, but holding a sibling to the um, agreement, I'm not sure that that would be in the best interest for all parties. That's what I think too. And here's the other part that I think is kind of interesting. So I love your point that this is a document that changes because we know that family situations change. It also can be a document that starts the conversation about who does what. So you get a feel for who's comfortable doing what. And then you use that document to have regular family meetings to check in and see, is everybody still okay with what's going on and who's doing what? And I think we've yes. got a caller, Lisa, if you want to jump yes, over. Yes, we do. So I'm going to yes. switch over. Yeah. yeah, I'll be right back. Yes. Okay. So I think it's interesting to think about it as a starting point for a conversation about who does what and when. And then it's a continuation of the conversation to have regular family meetings. And also, we know that caregiving intensifies, the declines happen. Sometimes the declines aren't consistent, so there's a decline and then a status quo. But then there's sometimes that there's a decline and it feels like it just keeps going. The declines don't stop. And in in a situation like that, it can be hard to catch your breath and step back and really realize all you're doing. So you keep doing and doing and doing without realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm really doing all this. So if you have this ongoing meeting around the agreement, it can also be the time when you step back and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much was going on, how much care was needed. Let's talk about revising the agreement to reflect how much care is needed. So maybe bringing the business into caregiving is not a bad idea. If you have created a personal care agreement, we'd love to hear from you too. So just a reminder, our phone number is 646-652-4944. I'll also post a recap of today's show on caregiving.com. So if you're not able to call during our live show, you can always post comments on our recap and let us know what you think. Something that I think is important in a personal care agreement are the breaks that you take. Really being specific about when you take a break can be helpful so that you do take the breaks and there's no surprise. So when a family is involved, you can sometimes feel like, well, I got to ask for a break or tell them I'm taking a break or communicate about the break, but if the break is part of the agreement, then everybody knows. Friday's the day that Denise is off. She's not helping today. Mom goes to the adult day center. The home health aide is there. Whatever it might be. And certainly, 
if the agreement also has the budget as part of it, it's easy then to let everybody know where the budget is, how much money has been spent, where the money is going, how much money is left. And I would also say that that's an important budget to keep track of, especially if you are thinking, okay, how will we know if we can continue to provide care at home? Should we be looking at nursing home placement? If you have a budget and you keep track of the budget, if you have about two years left of your carries assets, that's the time to just really start looking at it. Is there a facility in the community that could provide the level of care our carry needs? Are we able to provide that level of care still at home? One of the things that you don't want to do is wait until the last minute and look for nursing home placement when all the money has run out and you think, well, we can't hire money. We can't hire help at home because we don't have any money because you'll have the, the least best choices. So money, when you're looking for placement, whether it be nursing home or assisted living, buys you the better choices. So if you look, when you have two years left of your carries assets, it doesn't mean that you make the decision. It just means that you talk about the decision. Are we okay with keeping mom, whoever it is, at home for as long as possible? Okay. Lisa, do we have a caller? Yes, we do. I am bringing on Deborah, and in fact, this is a very appropriate time as she has some insight regarding finances and a, an agreement. Okay, great. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, Denise. This is Deborah Gregson. Hi, Deborah. What talking, hi. What you're talking about was one of the things that we talked about as a family. We were caring for my mother-in-law who had dementia, and we did have family meetings about what we were going to do because my sister-in-law was living with her, but her health was deteriorating rapidly, and she um, ended up going into the hospital to have a leg amputation. And so one of the things that we were stuck with was the fact that she went into a nursing facility for rehab after the leg amputation, but we only had about um, two and a half to three months of oh. private pay left once the rehab was over, and we knew that. And so what we had to talk about as a family was whether the place that she was at was where we wanted her to be once we got her qualified for Medicaid. And so what we started doing was working towards getting her qualified for Medicaid while she was in the rehab facility under Medicare. Am I still with you? Yep, makes total sense. And so we talked about that as a family, and what we did, because I was the one that was helping, my husband was her financial POA, so I was doing all the Medicaid application, all the billing um, for her, paying her bills and everything. What we did was we had her sign an agreement where she was paying both of us every month to take care of her financial stuff. And we set up a special savings account where we took that money that she was paying us every month and we put the money into an account for her to pay for any 
non-medical needs that she was going to have because Medicaid doesn't let you save any money. And that money eventually paid for things that Medicaid wasn't going to pay for for her. So those were things that we did as a family. We did have family meetings, and they didn't go well most of the time. But we sat down and talked and said, you know, she's going to be paying us. This is why she's going to be doing it. We're going to be setting this money aside for her. It's not paying me to do something for her. It's to save money for her that Medicaid won't let her have so that in the long run it's going to be benefiting her. And we did go back and readjust the care agreements that we had. Like eventually one of her daughters understood what we were doing, and so we started paying her to take care of doing my mother-in-law's hair and doing her nails for her so that then she gave us money that she was paid and we put it into that account. So when my mother-in-law needed a wheelchair that Medicaid wouldn't pay for because she was in a nursing facility, we were able to buy her own wheelchair so that she didn't have to rely on the nursing facility wheelchair always being in her room because somebody was stealing it. So you really had a creative solution to having her spend down money so that she is she could apply and be accepted for Medicaid, which is right. a state state funded program the that helps state persons funded that, program. Yeah, right. persons that have a low in income. Right. In California it's called Medi-Cal, but in most other yep. states it's called Medicaid. Because so you're only you, allowed to have two thousand dollars, but then when you're in a nursing facility, you're usually allowed to only have sixty dollars of spending money a month. Right. So you were able to, in essence, you became an ex, yeah. You became an expense. So when you right, looked at the record keeping, expense. you were an right. expense. She was paying you for a service, and then right. you used that money to save for her which was right. money that you could not have saved if she had kept it because she would have had to have, in order to qualify for she Medicaid, have, she had to spend down all that money. Right. She would have, she would have, that money that she was getting every month would have ended up going to actually the nursing facility to pay for her care there. Right. Right. And so when we were able to save up that money, it paid for things like bed holds that people don't understand they have to have. Yeah, when you're in a nursing right, yeah. facility, yep. if you yep. end up in the hospital for several days, if you want to keep their space at that facility, you have to pay to hold the bed there. And so that comes out of your own pocket. Well, none of us had the money to do that, but I saved enough money in that account that was in our savings account. I could save that money for her so that we paid for several bed holds for her. And each time it would be, you know, somewhere around $1,000 or so each time that we had to do that. And so, and we were able then, like I said, to get her her own wheelchair. She was very small. She didn't fit in the extra large size wheelchairs they had. They were always breaking. We couldn't get them fixed. So we bought her her own wheelchair that fit her. We could buy her clothes or juice packs or snacks or anything we wanted that the facility didn't provide for her. That way it wasn't coming out of our pockets, but it wasn't harming her financially either because she didn't have any money. So can I ask you, did you work with an attorney or a financial planner to create 
the agreements within the family and to set up this system so that you were able to get her qualified for Medicaid without running into running a foul. <laughs> I guess it's no, I had I had really good direction from a woman who had been a social worker for the county and told me some creative things to think about because my mother-in-law only had about $16,000 to spend down and she had a house and we were told we went to an attorney who basically wanted half of the $16,000 to basically create this plan and when I went to him um, he he said we had all the paperwork all they needed to do was go file the application, and they were going to charge us $8,000 to do that. And that didn't include eventually selling the house. And they weren't going to even apply for selling the house. They were going to wait until after she passed away. And so I went to the social services department and just explained that we needed to get her qualified for Medicaid within two months. And we wanted the best for her. We weren't trying to save any money for her. We weren't trying to protect an inheritance for ourselves. And once they understand, that's the thing. I wouldn't recommend this for anybody who may be trying to protect an inheritance or anyone who has, you know, $500,000 or more. She only had a house that was worth $100,000. She had $16,000 in a savings account. So we weren't trying to do anything. And in the end, we were able to let her sign the affidavit. It's called an intent to return form, saying that if she if she got better, did she intend to return home? And her answer was yes. She could sign that form, which meant that we did not have to sell the house until she passed away, which put that responsibility off from us so we didn't have to deal with it right away, which meant we didn't sell the house until after she passed away. And then Medicaid sent us a bill for the balance of what we owed, which ended up being about half the cost of what the house was. So in the end, the family actually ended up, each of the three kids actually ended up with a small inheritance from her. Because we did some creative financing and some creative stuff, and she only lived for two years in the nursing facility. One thing that I'll mention is at the National Caregiving Conference in November, we're going to have some elder law attorneys that can talk generally about the process of managing the finances, applying for Medicaid, and making sure that you do it in such a way that no one is penalized. Not your carry, not you. You have to be really careful. That was the thing is I understood enough of the rules to know that she wasn't going to be penalized for any of the time that we were doing. We weren't transferring the house from one person to another. It was still staying in her name. We weren't trying to hide any money because we weren't trying to keep Medicaid. We understood Medicaid was going to be reimbursed for the care they were giving because what most people don't understand about Medicaid is that you're supposed to spend all of your assets before the state helps pay for your care. 
it's not intended for you to save your inheritance for your children so that the state's paying for your care so you can save your inheritance to give to your kids. Medicaid's intended for caring for you after you've spent all your money that you have, which means that you do get rid of your house. You do get rid of your real estate. Yeah, You yep. have spent everything you have, and then the state says, we're sorry that it costs hey, all Deborah, that much money to take care of you. Yeah, you know what? You were running out so of time. So go on. <laughs> I know. So go on and do your so, stuff. Yeah. So I would you have other I, questions to answer. Yeah, so we've got just a little over a minute left, so I just want to remind folks that we'll continue a conversation like this on a future yes. show. We'll talk about how to manage the finances. How but I think what's really – But we did yeah. have a family care meeting where we kept meeting, and even though we weren't always getting along together, we did keep talking it through because this is the one thing we kept thinking about. What are we trying to accomplish? And it was taking care of Mama. That was the main focus. We are taking care of her. So I just want to thank Deborah for calling in tonight. Thank you and to so let, much. Oh, sure. And you can connect with Deborah on caregiving.com. She is Deborah <laughs> on caregiving.com. I am Deborah. Which is, nice, yes. <laughs> which is nice and easy. Thanks so much, Deborah. That was thank awesome. Thank you, ladies. You did a great yeah. job. Thanks, so Deborah. We've got thank just you. about 30 seconds left. So I just want to thank those who've listened live before we go off the air. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to continue talking after we go off the live show. The entire show will be available on the podcast, and that's usually available just about five minutes after our show airs. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that you want to keep careful record of finances. You want to make sure that you show all that's gone out, have receipts, really demonstrate what the expenses are during caregiving. Okay, thanks to our live listeners. And Lisa, what do you think about tonight's show? What do you what's your takeaway from tonight? It really started a great dialogue about this personal caregiving agreement and how I believe it is a vital document that's needed as part yeah. of all the other ones. Yeah, and there are documents that are available right now that you can use as a starting point, a guideline, a draft, and then you can tweak adjust, modify as you go forward. It's something that you could take to an elder law attorney and ask for help as you get started with it. And we'll keep talking about this. I have a feeling that this is not the last time we talk about it and that we'll be a part, <laughs> we'll be a part of a solution for you as we think about these personal care agreements going forward. So, Lisa, home run with the question tonight. That was a great question that you came <laughs> up with. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and just a reminder that Lisa and I talk out questions around caregiving on the last Sunday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And then our next podcast is actually tomorrow morning. Today on Your Caregiving Journey helps you start off your day and your week. And that airs at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you so much, Lisa. Always grateful for your help and your great your great great questions. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.